that great chapter uh, in relation to the theme that's been set before us for this weekend and especially for this evening about the work of the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, the God of love, and the fact that it says there in the fifth verse, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given. One of the perhaps little known facts about the history of Grove Chapel is the links that it has with the Banner of Truth Trust. Uh, the Banner of Truth Trust was formed back in the 1960s, uh, but its two founding trustees, uh, Jack Cullum uh, and Ian Murray, uh, were both very much part of Grove Chapel. Uh, Jack Cullum was a businessman who, who worshipped here um, and who was a member here, Ian Murray, who was the pastor here for uh, much of the 1960s and who, towards the end of his time, had John R. DeWitt, uh, then a PhD student um, in the Free University of Amsterdam, uh, but who was an associate pastor here um, and who worked alongside Mr. Murray um, as very much part of the, uh, the church and its work and its witness in this area. And John R. DeWitt, who recently passed away, uh, was also, for much of his uh, ministry, a trustee of the banner uh, and very much part of its ministry. And you may say, well, why begin your sermon with a reference to the banner of truth? Um, and for one very simple reason, that, that the heartbeat of Grove Chapel and the heartbeat of the banner are very much the same. That there's a, a love for the deep and rich teachings of the Bible, the rich doctrines that have been the backbone of the Reformed faith, which even though its name is linked back to uh, an event that took place uh, initially in Europe in the, the 16th century. Nevertheless, it really represents the heartbeat of Christianity as it's meant to be. Uh, it's traced back through the uh, Middle Ages, even in the darkness of those times spiritually, through faithful strands of teaching and uh, ministry that went on through Augustine and into the early fathers, right back to the Apostle Paul, the great theologian of the New Testament. And, and the, the essence of the handling of doctrine uh, by those men, uh, right back to New Testament times, was that all truth is unto godliness. But even though sadly in so many reform circles today, uh, the Reformation theology has been reduced to an academic exercise um, that is cold, that is heartless, that maybe stretches the mind but does little more in terms of inspiring people to live the Christian life. Uh, but these men realized, in line with what Paul says to Titus in the very opening words um, of his letter to, to that young pastor, uh, that if we know the truth, then it must lead to godliness, that our lives must be reshaped, transformed by the renewing of our mind as God's truth takes hold of us, uh, because it's not a dead letter, but it's the living truth of the living God that remolds and recasts our lives into the likeness of God uh, that we might become more and more a reflection of his glory as we were meant to be. But more than that, again, as Paul shows again and again in his, his epistles, um, that whenever you begin to explore the rich, deep truths of who God is, what God is like, um, it will inevit inevitably lead us not just to, uh, to holiness, it will lead us to praise and worship. It leads to doxology. The apostle cannot contain himself when he explores these great themes, he explodes in worship, love, and praise towards this great God 
who he is opening up as he reveals himself in his words to his people, the one whose majesty is revealed supremely in the person of his incarnate son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has been very much the story of Grove Chapel for these past 200 years, uh, a ministry that has believed that where the truth of God is proclaimed faithfully, it will bring about the transformation, not just of individual lives, but corporately and collectively, the new community of God's people. And it's one of the lovely things about the history of this church. It is, and always has been, a community of God's people. There's been a fellowship of the saints associated with this place for 200 years. But even people who've gone to the four corners of the, of the earth have treasured their links for this church, have been blessed through their time in this church, and it's something that brings us back together this weekend for this special occasion. How does this tie in with the role of the Spirit and the ministry of love that he exercises? Because it's, it, it, it helps us to understand how we are brought into this rich experience of transformed living in our relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul captures it so wonderfully well when, it says that it, when he says that it's by the Holy Spirit that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, to use the older translation. How is it that what God has planned, God the Father has planned from before the beginning of time to lavish his love upon a fallen race, that the Son of God has accomplished in the fullness of time, by going in love to the cross to die for those who hated him? How does that become part of our experience of God? Indeed, how do we experience a God who is beyond our comprehension? How do we come to relate to the God who is, because he is creator, distinct from us as his creatures, how does God enter into a living and loving relationship with his creatures in a way that will transform us individually and collectively in that covenant bond? And the answer is, by the Spirit of God, who sheds abroad, diffuses into our hearts, to use the language of Calvin, diffuses into our hearts the fullness of God's love, the richness of God's love, the depth of God's love, the grip of God's love upon those who he loves and draws into that loving bond with him. You know, and the reality is, dear brothers and sisters, that, that we never know what love is until we know what it means to be loved ourselves. Only when we've been on the receiving end of love, whether it be through a family member, or whether it be through a close, close friend, when we know what it is to be loved, to feel something of the sacrifice that's involved in love, then that doesn't teach us love in some academic way. It shows us love and draws us into a reciprocal, self-sacrificing expression of love, not only to those who have loved us, but even to those who Jesus says are our enemies, that we are able to love our enemies. Because while we were yet God's enemies, God loved us and sent his son to die for us. Paul makes it very clear in this passage that, that the, the Spirit's ministry in, 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 in pouring the love of God into the hearts of God's people 
in this, in this life-transforming way is not some mystical thing. The great, the great mistake of, of so, many, so many churches and Christians who have embraced the doctrine of the Spirit is they think that the Spirit works in a mystical way. The Spirit uses means, dear friends. And, and another curious connection, forgive me for going back to the banner for a moment, um, We're experiencing, over the past seven years in the Banner of Truth Trust, we've seen a strange thing happening. Uh, We've seen people coming from the most unlikely constituencies to to devour our books, to attend our conferences. I'm I'm just back from um, a week in California where we we relaunched a conference there that we closed over 12 years ago. And and it 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 was just an extraordinary success, but with the most unlikely people. We had Pentecostals, we had Charismatics, we have people from Calvary Chapel who constitutionally are anti, anti-reformed. And, and, and we've been trying to process, what is it that's bringing these people to read our books and to attend our conferences? And the answer is, all those people are big on experience in the Christian life. But they are light on what is the backbone of our experience. It's more than just a feel-good factor. You've got to have a reason to rejoice in experience. And, and, and the, the, the history of the Reformed faith and the history of, the, of true apostolic Christianity is that only when you grasp the greatness of who God is, the wonder of what God has done, in the great doctrines that blow our minds, it actually fuels our experience. It gives us depth to our relationship. There's substance there that we can get our teeth into and we can explode into into joy that is a shared experience of the people of God. And I, and I want to just explore very briefly in the time remaining to us how, how this comes out in this passage where Paul punctuates what he's been saying by, by this great statement about the Spirit of God shedding abroad the love of God in our hearts. First of all, he always directs us, he always begins by directing us to God's justifying grace. Verses 1 and 2. It would be very easy to take verse 5 completely out of context. And, and if we do that, then it's a major mistake because we fail to understand why Paul says this and what he's trying to do as he says this. And, and if, we're fully to, if, we're, if we're going to fully appreciate what the Apostle is saying, we need to see how these words in verse 5 are bound up with everything he said up until this point. And, and as we do so, we realize that the love that we experience in God, to use what Paul says in, in Ephesians 3, it is much higher, deeper, wider, longer than anything we could get our heads around. You know, we, we just haven't begun to appreciate the sheer immensity of God's love, the sheer wonder of God's love that Paul talks about, but we can't get our hearts around. Because too often we are so self-absorbed, self-satisfied, that we fail to be turned out towards this God who has turned his face towards us in loving kindness and tender mercy, to make us realize his love for us is beyond our wildest dreams. Summarizing it in the context of the flow of the letter as a whole, you know Romans well enough, I'm sure, to realize that Paul begins this great letter in verses 1 to 17 of chapter 1 by by declaring the greatness of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation, he says. But he, but he goes on to, to build on that by, de, by, by spelling out the graveness of the human problem. 
You know, the, the wonder of, of what we have in the good news of the gospel only makes sense when we fully appreciate just how dire our condition is, the human condition, la condition humaine, is a mess. And it goes to the very core of our humanity. And it's only when we appreciate just how spiritually ill we are that we begin to appreciate just how great God's remedy for us is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He does that in verses verse 18 of chapter 1 through to chapter 3, verse 20. But then he opens up the glory of God's solution in the Lord Jesus Christ, chapters 4 and 5, from which we have read in our reading this evening. And at the heart of God's gracious provision for our need, Paul brings us to what it means to be justified in God's sight. Not to be made righteous, but to be regarded as righteous. To be treated as though we were just as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. It's a legal declaration. It's an act of God's free grace that he should not only pardon us for all our sin, cleanse us from all our guilt, but accept us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us, reckoned to be ours, though never deserved in any measure. Why does he bring us to this point in, in, again and again? Why does Paul flag up justification as the standing or falling doctrine of a true church, to borrow Luther's phrase? It's because if God is righteous and just and we are sinners and guilty, how on earth can God accept us? How can God be just and yet justify the ungodly? How can God maintain his integrity as God and not betray his attributes as God and somehow welcome creatures like us into his family and call us his children? The answer can never lie with us. As Paul has already said, no matter how religious we try to be, our, our religion in its best expressions is nothing more than filthy rags in the sight of God. But rather, our justification is in Christ and through all that he has done. That's why the fourth chapter, uh, chapter ends with the words, He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised for our justification. Everything that Jesus Christ has done for us as our head and representative, the one who has taken our place, borne our sin, shouldered our guilt, experienced the just punishment that should be ours, allows God freely and justly to say, the righteousness of my son is yours. And for his sake, I accept you. It is he who through his death provided and by his resurrection provided that righteousness which is by faith from beginning to end. That verse in Romans chapter 1 which when Martin Luther revisited it, it suddenly dawned on him as the Holy Spirit worked within him that this is the key to salvation. This is the key to knowing that God is no longer against me. He is for me. He is no longer the God I should dread. He is the God I can love because he has loved me and he has given his son to die in my place. And Luther said after, after that great truth dawned upon him, it was as though for me that night as if the gates of paradise itself had opened and his life was turned around. 
and he no longer engaged in that futile exercise of trying to live in such a way to please God that somehow he could earn God's favor because his best efforts left him in dire despair. Our new standing before God rests not on how much we can do to please him, but on all that Christ has done for us in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his exaltation and enthronement. In that great inverse parabola that took him, the eternal son, out of the glory into the womb of the Virgin Mary, to be born in the fullness of time of a woman under law, that he might represent those who are born of women and are under law, but that through his perfect obedience, through his fulfilling all righteousness, through his atoning sacrifice, through his victorious resurrection, to be exalted to where we belong at the right hand of majesty on high, he has gone ahead of us as the captain of our salvation to say, where I am, you will be also. What does that mean in real terms? How do, we, how do we get our head around that in a way that translates to our experience, in a way that makes a difference to our self-understanding, to our, our, our ability to cope with ourselves because we are still sinners and because we still fail and we still mess up? But Paul immediately goes on to spell this out by showing how the Holy Spirit not only leads us to understand these great truths, but to experience these great truths. That they might be woven into the very fabric of our new humanity. And it's captured in, the, in part in the opening words of this chapter where he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have, been, have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yet at the most basic level, the, Ho the Holy Spirit enables us to grasp the greatness of what is promised in the gospel as the foundation of all our hope. You know, in, in, in the western end of Cardiff, where our little church is, um, which is, which is full of challenges, um, and our little building is a challenge. It's, um, it's small, it's kind of awkward, and, and we've dreamed for many years of, of, of getting more land so we can put up a proper church. Um, but, but we know that, that even though that may happen one day, there are all kinds of legal obstacles standing in our way before we can put a single spade in the ground or a brick upon a brick. You've got to clear all the planning approvals. You've got to clear all the legal requirements before you can begin to embark on that kind of project. And here is, here is Paul, and he's saying, all the legal work is done. All the regulations have been satisfied. Every requirement has been met. And we can clear the field to start building something new. Well, what makes it so great is that all of this is of grace from beginning to end. Because so often, whenever we're asked to explain grace to our Sunday school children, we say it's God's unmerited favor. That's true, but it doesn't tell the whole story. 
R.C. Sproul put it much better, is God's demerited favor. It's not simply unmerited, it's demerited. It's the polar opposite to what we deserve. And yet God has been pleased in his grace to deal with us as though we were as righteous as his incarnate son. As though we had the perfection of the eternal son in our flesh, living a flawless life in the sight of God and before men. And the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus as the one in whom and through whom all of this is ours. All of this is ours. I've been struck as the years rack up. And you, and you look around at fellow ministers, some of whom are a few years farther down the line than we are. And, and I've been struck by the number of, of pastors slightly older than me who, as they've come towards the end of their serving ministry, have said, you know, I've resolved in the remaining years that I have to do nothing but preach Christ in all my sermons. Not to preach how-to sermons, not to preach sermons that just make people uncomfortable, but to preach Jesus, to proclaim him. And all the men who have done that have seen extraordinary transformation in their congregations. They've seen their people come alive. They've seen their people recover the joy of their salvation. And, and, and it's been a mistake, again, in, in, in reform circles too often. We've been in love with our theology. We've worn that title, Re Reformed, as a badge of honor. When the reformers themselves would have been disgusted by that. We don't rejoice in our theology. We rejoice in the one who is revealed and displayed to us that truth. We rejoice in God, the God of our salvation. We rejoice in Jesus Christ, who is the essence of our salvation in terms of what he has accomplished. The second thing that, that Paul points to is, as, as, as the means by which the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts is, is that, that he also strengthens us through life's adversities. He also strengthens us through life's adversities. You know, I can guarantee if, if, if we were to have an open mic session at this point, and I was to go around every one of you in this building this evening and tell me about your, tell me about your life, if you were being honest, you would have more than your fair share of adversity. You would tell me of tears that you've shed, of troubles that you've faced, of ordeals that you've gone through, of sleepless nights, of... of of all these things that have brought you to your knees and, and at times you've cried out, why, Lord, why? What's it all about? And, and Paul says, actually, that's normal Christian living. You may have, we might wistfully think, you know, I became a Christian to get a peaceful life. You know, and you discover that the moment you say yes to Jesus, suddenly you find yourself plunged into all manner of troubles that you never had before. But you can't walk away. Because, because as Paul tells us in the, in the, in the letter to the Philippians, that I, I make it my goal to, to, to share, to partake in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just the power of his resurrection, but to share in his sufferings. You know, you know, and the most basic reason for that is that Jesus was the ultimate misfit. He came as the perfect man into an utterly imperfect world. didn't fit. Even growing up, he didn't fit. Because, because all his mates 
were unholy little sinners. His own family mocked him, doubted him, thought he should be sectioned because he had lost his mind. He didn't fit. And yet there was something that just drew people to him like a magnet. And and that's us. We have the suffering of, of, of living in a world to which we no longer belong. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. And, and, and so long as we are in this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. There will be friction. There will be turmoil. There will be disappointment. There will be pain. And to many of us, that doesn't make sense. There's something, something in our human logic says, you, if, if we try to live a good life under God's hand, surely that will lead to blessing and to good things. And so often it's the opposite is our experience. The more we try to live faithfully and serve consistently, it just seems to lead to trouble after trouble, anguish after anguish. And we think surely a God of love would do all in his power to spare his beloved children from suffering and pain. And yet Paul makes a deliberate connection between what we suffer in the life of faith and God's love for us. It's there in the words um, because that makes the connection, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, character, hope, and hope doesn't disappoint because God has poured his love into our hearts. There's a direct connection between the outpouring of God's love upon us as Christians and the experience of suffering in the Christian life. And God uses the worst of things to the best of purposes. What's the worst thing that has happened in human history? The day that God was nailed to a cross. The day that the world thought we can be done with God once and for all. And he was mocked and spat upon, ridiculed, jeered at, slandered. And in his humanity he felt the anguish of that. He felt the barbs that were hurled against him. And yet he knew that in this worst of events that history has ever witnessed, the best of things was being accomplished. And that principle that is articulated not in the small plint of the gospel invitation, but up front and in your face, if anyone will follow after me, let him or her deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And in the Roman world where those words were first spoken, that was saying, if you become a Christian, you accept a death sentence. That the remainder of your days on earth are days in which you die to self in order that you might live to God. That you might be crucified to this world and this world crucified to you. That you might live for the better world that is to come. And the reason these struggles of life in the life of faith don't end up destroying us is because God uses them and blesses them to us for our good and for his glory. Isn't it strange that the psalmist in Psalm 119 says it was good for me to be afflicted? Because there's things that you learn when you're afflicted that you don't learn any other way. It's only through those dark days that you learn to persevere 
It's only in those painful circumstances that the ugly bits of your character are chipped away and Christ-like character is produced within you. And even in your darkest moments of despair, from which you cannot rescue yourself, but discover that God will graciously rescue you, you come through those dark times and you have hope because God gives us hope. And he is the source of all our hope. If we find it hard to get our heads around this in our own experience, just look at the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been the great mistake in so many churches that we, um, we, are, we are riddled with the doctrine of with, with the heresy of Apollinarianism. Blank faces. Christians who don't take seriously the genuineness of Christ's humanity. We tend to think deity always trumps humanity. But Jesus Christ was fully human as well as being fully God. And you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is wrestling. And he is sweating drops of blood. And from the human perspective of his real human understanding, he is saying, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass. I can't cope. I can't bear it. God has to send an angel from heaven to sustain him. And Jesus punctuates the prayer by saying, nevertheless, not my human will, but your divine will be done. And he went to the cross, trusting the promise of the Father. I will not abandon you. I will honor your sacrifice. And you will secure the victory. Jesus had to live by faith. Or, or listen to how Hebrews gives us such a poignant insight into the reality of what it meant for Jesus to be human and the reality of his struggles. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There's our suffering Savior. There's the one who has been tempted in every way, tested in every way like we are, yet never sinned, remained untainted. And it's summed up in the wonderful climax of the book of Hebrews. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And where is he now? He is now set down at the right hand of majesty on high. God the Father was not the source of Christ's suffering, but he sovereignly used his suffering to the greatest goal imaginable, and Jesus knew his Father well enough to know that, no, that would be the case. He was the Father who would never fail him. The Father who would never, ever abandon him. More than this, Jesus also knew that he was not left to face this suffering by himself. There's a word in the, the Greek language that crops up uh, multiple times in, in the upper room discourse of John's gospel. It's, it's where Jesus refers to uh, the, the Holy Spirit as parakletos, paraclete. It's sometimes trans transliterated into the English language. And, 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 and 
translators have wrestled, how do you translate that word? Comforter. Strengthener. Counselor. And, 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 and I think the best way to understand that, that technical term, because it was used in, in secular Greek as well as in biblical Greek, um, is to see him as Jesus' best friend, who was with him through thick and thin, who was with him every step of the way. There was never a moment from the moment when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the very Virgin Mary right through to his exaltation to glory when the Holy Spirit wasn't present and active in his life, sustaining him, strengthening him, comforting him, counseling him, all those things. And that same Spirit of God who sustained our Savior through his earthly life, ministry, death, and resurrection is the one he has given to us. I give you another counselor, not of a different kind, but the one who has been mine, my support. The one who has sustained me in the 33 years of a brief life on earth. And again, dear Christian friend, if, if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, then the same spirit that upheld him is upholding you today. He'll uphold you through whatever lies ahead. And when the time of your departure comes, he will uphold you through that final journey. Now, as Jesus prepared his disciples for his departure, he promised that the Holy Spirit would be sent to them in full measure. Luke says of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, after he'd been baptized, after the Spirit of God had descended upon him in a dove-like form, and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I well pleased. What is the very next thing that the Holy Spirit did? The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Jesus didn't take a wrong turn. The Spirit of God led him there. There's not one of our troubles in life that the Holy Spirit hasn't wisely, yes, often mysteriously, but wisely ordained to bring us to where God wants us to be by the end of the journey. Does he do that because he hates us? He does it because he loves us. And he wants us to know the love of God that is proved in the worst of times. You want to know how much your family loves you? You discover it when things are really bad. Not when everything's going swimmingly, but when everything's going wrong, that's the test of love. That's the test of when what it's really like. But then finally, and not surprisingly, the Holy Spirit ultimately brings us to the cross of Christ, verses 5 and 6. There's one final detail on what Paul says here about the Spirit and the way he leads us into the experience of God's love. And he does so not by bypassing our mind in some mystical way, but rather by focusing our minds on the cross of Christ. You know, we, we sing about the cross, we read about the cross, we hear sermons about the cross, but we can never fathom the cross. You know, the angels of heaven are still scratching their heads because they cannot take in how much took place on that day, on that Roman gibbet outside Jerusalem. And once again, Paul notes the connection um, that he's making. Having just spoken about the Spirit's filling of our hearts with the love of God, he says, for while we 
were still weak. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And again, in in, in verse 8, he he, he goes on to to build on that by, by saying, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's something very objective in what Paul says here. Although there is undoubtedly a subjective side to how it may feel to be loved, our perceptions are never reliable. We never fully appreciate or grasp the the, the dimensions of, of love that we are the recipients of. And, and, and Paul is saying, well, look at the objective side of it. Look at the sheer facts. How did God prove his love for you? While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Christ didn't wait. God didn't wait for you to get one foot on the ladder. He didn't get, wait for you to get an inch of the way back to where you ought to be. While you were still in an abject mess, Christ died. Too often we fail to appreciate, as David so helpfully said to us this morning, the cost of the love that we experience. If we are the beneficiaries of someone else's love, again, it might be a a dear friend or it might be a family member. It can be all kinds of people. It might be a spouse. But rarely do we appreciate how much sacrifice is involved in the demonstration of meaningful love. What it costs the lover to love. And we're allowed a glimpse into the God who is love and the God who pours out the most glorious expression of love that the universe will ever know. And, and, and he says, do you want to see how big it is? Look what it cost me. Look at the price that was paid in order for this love to be lavished extravagantly upon you. And nowhere is that more true than when it comes to the cost of being bound up with the grace of God in this new relationship of redemption. And that explains the direction in Paul's line of reasoning. He moves from speaking about the the Holy Spirit and, and the love of God ultimately to Calvary. You, you know, that's, that's the omega point of God's purpose the depths of suffering that Christ experienced in that place, in that time, that represented the price, the cost required in the scale of divine justice to lift us to the heights of joy and safety and peace and pleasure that are only found in the bosom of God himself. And, and, and there we see the love of God in all its fullness. And, and Paul's logic in all of this to say that if that's how far God is prepared to go to show his love for sinners, then we have no grounds for doubting that he will give us all we need as his saints. The Americans have this lovely expression, do the math. And, and, and in, in Romans eight thirty-two, Paul says, do the math. If God did not spare his only beloved son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not then also graciously, freely give us all things? If he has gone that far, then there's no further he can go 
He has gone to the outer limits of hell itself in order to provide us with the, the dizzy heights of heaven in all its glory. It was only when Jesus had plumbed the depths of hell, crying out, I am forsaken, why? That he was then able to cry out in heavenly victory, it is accomplished, it is done, the price is paid, salvation is secured once and for all. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. Whoever comes to me, I will never disappoint them. And I'll never turn them away. Maybe that's you this evening. You've held back. Dear friend, don't hold back any longer. He is a Savior who will never let you die. Because he is a Savior who loves sinners and failures just like me. How fitting that we close the service this evening around the table of love. Where this sacrament began its life as the love feast of the New Testament church. Where we came to celebrate. The people of God came to rejoice in the rich mercy of this God of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and says, come into my banqueting hall where my banner over you is love. Let's pray. Loving God, merciful Father, faithful friend, unfailing Savior, fill our minds with a richer, deeper knowledge, the wonder of who you are and all you've done. Fill our hearts with loving faith, O Lord, that allows us to cast ourselves upon your mercy in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as we prepare to come around the table, let's sing once more third hymn. For your gift of God the Spirit. Number three to God's praise. <laughs>